Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Where have all the fathers gone? That's what I'm going to discuss today with my guest, David Williams, a speaker and evangelist whom I met last year at a fundraiser for Real Options Obra Medical Clinics that serve women in the San Francisco Bay Area with unplanned pregnancies. David has a compelling story and a perspective in that he has been on all sides of the fatherhood issue, the good, the bad, and the in-between. David, thanks for joining me today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, Andrea. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Now, quite frankly, I had never heard of you before that evening, but you pretty much had me spellbound as you testified not only about your failures, which you did quite transparently, but also the change that Jesus Christ made in your life that helped you restore the function you have as a family. And I'm going to have you get into your story, but before I do, I'd like to ask you, since you spend a good bit of time on this topic, speaking before audiences, where have all the fathers gone? And I'm talking about those fathers of aborted children, those fathers who've left the women they impregnated to raise children on their own, and even those fathers who might be physically present, but don't realize how important they are in their children's lives. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, that's a great question, Andrea. You know, I think when it comes to the, especially the issue of unplanned pregnancies and the issue of abortion, I think the way that it has been um, packaged has made men feel like they're not a part of the equation. So when you think of an unplanned pregnancy and abortion and the rhetoric that goes behind it, it's a, it's a woman's choice. It's a woman's reproductive issue. Um, men typically, it seems like there's no place for them. And, you know, on both sides of the thing, when you think about the pro-choice, you know, it's often that um, it's the it's the, the you know, it's the thoughts about the woman and then pro-life. It's the argument is the thoughts about the child. But the way it's been been wrapped is like, where's the where's the man? And the man is very important. Uh, you know, the, the man is a he's a father of a pre-born child, um, but yet he's not even spoken about. And so I think for men, um you know, it can get, it can almost give men a pass. It can almost give men a pass to shirk their responsibility, um, to, to, um, you know, not step up to what it is that they are now, um, that they are and to step into that. And so, you know, I think that happens in the unplanned pregnancy. And, and then let's say that a woman goes on to have a child. And, you know, um, I, I think, you know, oftentimes it, the thought is like, the man's automatically supposed to step in and be there. And then if he's not, he's a deadbeat. So we got on this one end, he's really not important. But then, you know, once a child is born, he's the he's to be there. And and I think for a lot of men, it's left them confused. And I think over the, the decades and the generations, I think we have, you know, this sense of fatherlessness where we see a lot of, you know, men and and girls, boys and girls that are growing up without their dad. So it's almost as if, you know, dad's not needed. Um, you know, we can have family without dad. Um, and then on the back end, I think when it comes to an abortion, you know, we often don't think about the man, but I think the man who is a father of a preborn child, um, 
when there's an abortion that happens, there's a loss of fatherhood and there's deep pain that happens to a man's heart. And I think it's hard for men to connect that pain. And I think that pain of going through an abortion can exasperate some of the other pains that have been in a man's life. You know, a lot of men, even even myself, you know, may have not, I wasn't physically aborted, but I felt from my relationship with my dad, I was emotionally aborted. And so, uh, you know, a lot of men don't know what it is to be a man, don't feel like they have the capacity to be a man or a father, don't know what that looks like. So there's, I think there's a lot of different dynamics um, that play into this. You know, where are the men uh, when it comes to all phases of, of, you know, pregnancy, children being born, or even when there's an abortion that takes place? So I have a question that because you, like I said, have dealt with this, you probably have considered before the advent of movies and television, which quite frankly shape a lot of people's mind on a lot of things because they've seen it depicted. How did men learn how to be fathers? I mean, we had a culture that had intact families. So where did men learn this that somehow or other they don't have access to now? You know, I I think society's changed. You know, I I think even with, uh, you look at generations in the past where, a lot of stuff was like farming where a dad had a career and the child may be the apprentice. And so I think there was a lot of learning and interaction that took place in the course of just everyday life. And I think with some of the changes that we have had, and some of them have been good changes. Um, but I think in that, you know, some of that has been lost. And so now and, and, um, you know, marriage isn't looked at as, as sacredly as it once was. And so, you know, it's, um, People are okay with single parent, you know, families or um, people going through divorces aren't looked at as bad anymore. So it does leave children where, especially young men growing up where they don't have that man that's there. And so I think what you said, you know, with the media, whether it's TV, movies, the internet, um, social media, I think those are a lot of things that, that now young men are, they're looking, they're searching and, and they're getting a lot of different messages about what it means to be a man, but there's not really that close personal uh, interaction that there has been. And I think some of the generations that have come before us. Talk about the idea of a stigma. I remember growing up, if a girl got pregnant, it wasn't announced, it wasn't celebrated, and she would go off and maybe live with her aunt until the pregnancy was completed and the child was put up for adoption. And some people decry such, they say, see, we shouldn't stigmatize people for this. But in some regards, don't you think stigmas serve a good purpose? Uh, I think they can, you know, especially, I, you know, <laughs> it's a great question. Because, um, you know, I, I think, and this may be going a little off of where we're going, but I think when we think of like the, you know, where abortion is in our country and just the astounding number of abortions. I think the one thing that we rarely talk about is the fact that there is this design for sex and sex is designed to be between a a man and a woman in a marriage and marriage becomes the safest place for, you know, it's the purpose of that is procreation of children, the pleasure that that man and woman can have just between the two of them. And even sex being something that protects them in their relationship with one another against other temptations. And so now, you know, there's there's not stigmas towards, you know, sex outside of marriage. And so I think what that allows is it it, it um, 
almost gives a, a permission, a permissibleness um, that this is fine and this is okay. And uh, I think what it leads to is other things down the line, especially when you look at today, if you even look at like numbers of abort or who's having abortions, you know, 86% of the women that are having abortions today are unmarried women. And so it's like, I think some things that God has designed that we now look at as being archaic and old fashioned were things that he designed for our good. And he designed that would be the best, not just for that man or woman, but it would be the best for any child that would be a part of their union. So I do think there, you know, that, that some stigmas are good in the sense that stigmas almost tell people to realize like this isn't normal. This isn't the way that things should be. You know, things are supposed to be differently. Now, you know, for us to shun people in that, that's, that's one thing, but I think we have such a permissible, permissibleness in our culture that it's almost like anything goes and we've kind of sown the wind. And we're now reaping the whirlwind as we look at some different aspects of it. That's true. I think the scripture says over and over again, we're not to move to the ancient boundaries. And there are lots of boundaries not only have been moved, but have been obliterated. In other words, you're not allowed even to talk about boundaries. And people keep wondering how we go from saying, okay, we'll, for example, legitimize that two people of the same sex would want to be married. And so we have to make the mental gymnastic that that's a marriage as opposed to something else that now I find that most Christians find themselves on the defensive. And so they'll have to put Mm -hmm. the sentence, I don't hate anybody, but God's word says, well, why do we have to say I don't hate anybody Mm -hmm. before that? Because the culture has pushed the biblical perspective on the fringes as opposed to those things that should be on the fringes are now center stage. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think any time that a nation, a country, you know, codifies things into law, I think people begin to think, you know, that those things are right, even though they may be ethically wrong, morally wrong. It just puts into the to the thoughts of people that this is legitimate. and so. It, it, it is sad in our culture where, you know, so many things that that we shouldn't have to be on the defensive because these are things that are contrary to nature and they're contrary to the God who created nature. And, you know, we should be able to just say what God says without putting that there. But I think the the laws and generations growing up with thinking that, you know, this is right or wrong. I think a country that declares or says that we trust in God or God is the one that we trust. But the things that we do are so contrary to it. I think it shows that there are a lot of people that the trust is really in the authority that was established by a greater authority, God. We put our trust in government rather than God. And it's shaping the things that that people think or, or people think that are right. And it is bringing a lot of you know consequences. It's bringing destruction to our country, to our civilization, because God is created a way and given a foundation upon which to build something that will be strong and last and bring blessing to those that are part of it. And when it's done contrary to that, then we see the demise. We see all of these different things. And instead of turning back to the God that we have offended by choosing to do things our own way, you know, we continue to try to add different layers on how we can even bring, you know, do these things and, and still continue to move forward instead of turning back to him. You know, I, I think if, if we were looking at what's happened societally, 
it's as, it's about as ludicrous to think it happened accidentally as yep. to believe in evolution. I mean, yep. you have to believe an awful lot of nonsense to believe that out of an amoeba came any any life form like uh any mammal or of the human being. So it has to have been a deliberate act. So who wants to attack the family and chooses the main target, the bullseye to be the father? Who? It's uh it's it's the enemy. I think we can go back to, you know, we can go back to the beginning of the Bible and go back to the Genesis. It's almost like God establishes an order. He created a man. He gave the commandments to the man. And from that man, he brought a woman that was made from the man. And and then here comes in the midst of, you know, the, the beautiful garden where everything they need could wish for or want is there. And uh, God, ha- he does have the one tree that he says that they're not to eat of. And it's the tree of good and evil. And, and, and even as we look at that, it says, why would God do that? But God wanted a relationship with us and a relationship was a two way street. And then here comes the deceiver. Here comes the, the, the enemy. And, uh, you know, he comes to deceive the woman. Um, the man happened to actually be right there and he failed to step up and to be the man that he was. And, and when that would, when that came and, and they ate of that fruit and they fell away from God, then that began, uh, you know, an alienation with God and a separation from him, but an alienation with one another and one that to this day that still impacts you know, our world and it impacts our family and it impacts our relationships. And the only one who can bring restoration to that is the second Adam that God sent. And that was Jesus Christ, the one who obeyed God fully and the one who actually died on a tree and shed his blood in order to reconcile us back to God, that we could have a relationship with him. But but the enemy, it's like, you know, he, he wants to get if if I want, you know, the family to be out of place, I'm going to come and I'm I'm going to challenge the authority, uh, you know, of, of the man. I'm going to get him not to, you know, step into the place that he was called and ordained to step in. Because when he hits that, then everything else falls out of order. And that's why I go back to early television. You know, early television made a mockery of marriage. It made a mockery of fathers. And it actually set the stage to have women resonate with the feminist movement because all the mother did was sit around and try to figure out what to do be- to make herself important. And so we had zany housewives and we had dumb fathers who didn't know what was going on. And in actual fact, I believe that was a propaganda move. It was a new medium. Television was new. People were going to go, yep. we're going to watch it. And they didn't look at it critically. And sadly, because so much of the culture had moved away from a biblical base, yep. they had nothing to judge it on. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And and I just think, you know, also, what's one of the names that they use for for Satan, for for the one who's the enemy of, of God and the enemy of humanity? It's the prince of the power of the air. So how does he propagate his message? You know, his message, which is anti-God, which is anti-God's design, anti-family, anti-marriage, anti-kids. He's going to bring it through the mediums of what's the, you know, mediums of television and, and radio and now the World Wide Web and social media. He's going to propagate his message and, and create all of these distortions of what it means, you know, for young men to be a, a man or a young woman to be a woman, you know, or, you know, the fact that nowadays it's not even man or woman. It's, you know, you decide what you are instead of right. realizing that there's a God who from the beginning 
created male and female. And, um, you know, God hasn't changed. And what causes us to think differently is sin. It's sin, which has, um, you know, it's darkened our mind. It's darkened our hearts. It causes us, us to think contrary to God. And, and Satan wants us to continue to give in to those, you know, desires of our flesh that go contrary to God. So he constantly pumps his messages and pumps his messages and pumps his messages. And that's why as the church, we, we have to, uh, unapologetically stand on the word of God, stand on what God says when it comes to marriage and family and male and female and sex. Um, because if we're not, then we got a generation that are growing up and, you know, constantly hearing that. And oftentimes, sadly, the church is either silent or we've actually gone the wrong way. And, and we're, you know, in agreement with things that are contrary to the authoritative word of God. Yeah. And, you know, when you reject the biblical model of the husband being the head and the covering and protection for the woman, and you convince people that it's an insult for a man to open a door for you, or it's an insult for him to stand up and say, would you like my seat? You sort of force people into a position that, and I know this to be true in a number of cases, a lot of women got pregnant and never told the father of their child that there was a baby. Now we could say, poor dad, (laughs) he never got a chance to say no. But again, they had engaged in activity that they had to know could produce a child, right? And so how many men are walking around today having um, failed to do their part for their offspring, but don't even know they have offspring? I think there's a lot. You know, one of the things that um, that I do is I lead Bible studies um, for men, men, men that have been impacted by abortion. And and there have been a few where it's been a number of years before they found out that they, in fact, were a father. But they walked around for years not knowing. And I think that happens quite often. But you, you did hit on something that I think is uh, is very powerful because I, I will have some of those men. And their only response is like great anger towards the woman. Like how in the world could she ever choose to do that and not inform me? And on, in and of themselves, they can come across almost feeling like I'm, I'm the victim. I'm innocent. I didn't have any part to play, but you mentioned something that, you know, they got there a, a certain way. And, and most of these guys, they weren't married to the, to the woman. You know, they were having sex outside of what God designed. And uh, as a result of that, she ended up pregnant. And so in some regards, it's like her being left to the place where she has to make this choice. Yes, it was wrong that she did not inform you that you were, in fact, the dad or give you the opportunity to speak up for the life of your child. Yes, that's not right. But the very fact that she found herself in that place was because as a man, you know, we fail to do what we should have done. Like as men, if we're going to be men, then we need to, one, I think a real man honors God. And so um, a, a real man is going to honor God's design. He's going to honor women. He's not going to tr- use women as an object for his pleasure. He's going to honor a woman. If I'm going to honor a woman and hold her up with dignity and value, then I am not going to use her in that way or, you know, lay down to have sex with her. Until we are in a committed relationship where she knows I'm committed to her because before God, we have said that this is, you know, a relationship we're coming into till death do us part. And when we lose that first part, 
we end up with a lot of sad situations where there are men who are walking around, but yet those men, you know, had they been men, um, then that situation would have never occurred. And so, you know, it's a, it's a whole cycle that, that, that goes, but I, yeah, I think you're right. And, um, I think whether or not a man knows that, that, that he was, uh, you know, he was the dad of a, a baby that never had the opportunity to be born because an abortion happened. I think there's something that still deeply breaks in the heart of man. Cause I think even abortion, even though it's a, it's a physical act, I think it's, it's spiritual. And the fact that, um, you know, here, here's a child that God is knitting together. There's a connection that that man and that baby and that child has. And I think that something, there's something in a man that, that breaks because there weren't things that he was able to do, even though he may not have known about it. So I think there's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Uh, and there's just a lot of situations that could have been avoided if we go back just to the place that we put those stigmas in place, like sex outside of marriage. It isn't right. You right. know, a woman getting pregnant outside of it. That's not the right way. But once that happens, we want to walk with them through that, you know, and help them to hopefully be restored to a point where they won't continue in this behavior, but they will see that there's a God who has a better way, who, you know, want, who's given his life for me so my life can be changed and different so I can do things and avoid some of these things that, that, that I've come into. I think of the passage where it says that someone who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. And so for a man, if he does not know if a casual relationship, a one night stand, whatever it is, suddenly the girl disappeared or whatever it is, or he paid for the abortion or encouraged it, the Bible says he's worse than an infidel because he didn't provide for that child. I think you're right. And I think there's some things instinctively God has put into a man, you know, God's put into a man to be a provider. God's put into a man to be a protector. God has instinctively, you know, made made men to be a part of the procreation process, whether we're acknowledged or not in it. You know, men, men um, instinctively love, you know, pleasure and men want to perform. And oftentimes that, that's in work. But but for an abortion, I think all five of those things are, are hit. You know, they, they didn't, regardless of why the decision was made for an abortion, the man didn't have the opportunity to provide or protect, whether he pushed for it, whether he didn't know about it. You know, that wasn't there. The procreation process that he was a part of from the very beginning ends in a tragic fail. It ends in the loss of his child and the death of his preborn child. And um, something that was pleasurable, an act of, of you know, sexual act um, be- can become very painful. And his performance when he looks at that is uh, is a tragic fail. And so there's a lot that happens. But but, yeah, I think what you said is absolutely right. You know, when somebody doesn't provide, they're worse than an infidel. And in our culture, that's something that's hard to say. But I think it's absolutely true. It's like, you know, we're failing to provide. Um, One, because we've bought into the lie that this isn't a a life that's to be provided for. But it is a life. uh, One from the very beginning, from the fertilization of that sperm with that egg that becomes a one cell organism, a zygote, which has everything there for every stage of human development and then begins this process of multiplication into a hundred trillion cell adult. But everything that's needed for every stage of the development of that child is absolutely there at that time. And so that is life that is growing into the fullness of everything that it will be. But we have so cheapened that, 
that for a lot of, you know, men and a lot of women, you know, it, it doesn't cause some of those things instinctively that even God has put in us to be challenged or for us to cause to be, um, I guess, confronted to raise up to a higher standard instead of being lowered down into, you know, what the world has drug us into, which has led to a lot of, a lot of death and a lot of depravity in our world and in our culture. Indeed. And you know, it's interesting, David, that God, obviously being the creator, understood and worked into human beings sexual attraction. Yeah. All right. Um, when Adam saw Eve, um, <laughs> he wasn't saying, wow, now I have someone to cook breakfast. That came along with it, maybe, but he was no doubt aroused. And, yeah. and so that's a good thing. Without it, without it, there would not be children. Okay. Yeah. But the Bible, specifically God's law, had a provision that before you would marry someone, the man was to produce a dowry to demonstrate not only that he could provide for her and children should they come, but that he was serious. And although the Bible doesn't specify how much that was, I've read various things that said it was customarily about three years of wages. We do know that Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, oh. except it turned out to be 14 years because he got yep, a fast one there, right? <laughs> so it's this idea that not that you're buying a woman, you're demonstrating faithfulness in advance, yep. right? And yep. so that would be a deterrent for fornication outside of marriage because the law also provided that uh, the father, after the two had come together, could say, nope, you can't marry my daughter, but you owe the dowry. So yep. there was a, a financial consideration to go ahead and move the ancient boundaries. And now we have a governmental system that's more than happy to move the dad out of the way and even pay for the abortion um, yep. with taxpayer funds. So we see that um, this whole statist mentality was really meant to push out fathers and in the process convince them that um, it's a woman's problem. It's not a man's. Yeah. You know, even, even taking that further, Andrea, not, not only to pay for it if she chooses to have an abortion, but you know, whether it's through the welfare system or some other system, which, you know, goes against marriage as well. So it's almost as if, you know, we'll continue to provide for you. And your kids, as many kids as you want to have, or if you don't want to have them, we'll, you know, pay for the abortion. But it kind of acts, yeah, it acts as the man out, makes him feel like you don't necessarily need a man and, and you can, you know, move ahead on your own. And it's just left a, a culture of kids that are growing up in fatherlessness. And just some of the symptoms from that are, are astounding. And, you know, some of the pain that we are experiencing from one generation to the next is just being perpetuated because, yeah, you're right. You know, men, men aren't being called to step up and um, someone else will 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 step up and take their place and and feel free to raise up your kids and through the public schools and teach them all manner of things when it comes to uh, what is a marriage, what is marriage, what is gender, what is sex. You know, so all these things, instead of being taught by a dad who's been moved out of the way, who is given the charge by God to bring up his children in the fear and in the instruction of the Lord. He's been moved out of the way. And now you got the government stepping in and they'll not only give money, but they will also point this child instead of bringing him up in the Lord. They will point them to ways that are contrary to the Lord 
and it just it just caused the um I guess the ripple effect of what we see from one generation to the next to be even more devastating as we kind of continue to go down this slippery slope that we're on. Yeah, I often quote the second commandment that says visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children to the third and fourth generation. Well, you see that played out. Fatherless homes produce fatherless homes. Girls who um, have abortions 40, 50 years ago tell their daughters and their granddaughters, it's no big deal. I had it and look, I still have a happy life, which is questionable. Right. So when it comes right down to it, if you do it other than God's way, it's going to be tragic. And you have to wonder. And, and, you know, in the news recently, we hear about riots and, and, um, in various inner cities or police, um, acting in a way that nobody would ever have considered it likely that a policeman would act a hundred years ago. And you have to wonder, and I don't think a study will ever be done, but maybe you, there are studies. How many of these people are fatherless? How many of these people never had to worry that if I step out of line, my father's going to knock me upside the head, even if he does all sorts of things that they, they didn't have a reverence and fear for a father because he was absent. There was nobody to fear. No, I think, I think you're right. I think, um, I think that contributes in more than we know in various situations as we look around, like they're, um, you know, yeah, no, no dad being there. It, it does. It changes the way that, you know, you think, I think God puts fathers there to, you know, to, to love their children, to bring them up, to be an example, but also to help them to know those boundaries that are there that, that you're not to cross. And so without that being there, I think, you know, generation grows up and they've been crossing the boundaries all their life. They've been, crossing it as kids and and even in crossing the boundaries they're being reinforced by society that it's okay to cross the boundaries and so then you get in situations where there are rules and there are regulations and there are ways that you are supposed to be well you've been living your whole life whereas if like i can pretty much it's almost like the days of judges like there was no you know no no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes and so it's like, and, and now you got those people that have lived that way for so long. And then all of a sudden, it's like, now you're supposed to abide by some rules or some codes of conduct. But I've lived my life just kind of doing what, what I've wanted. And you said, that's okay, a good way for me to express myself. And so I think it does lead to some atrocities that we see in our world. So, so, but there's a, you know, I think there's a, a lot of different things. I think, um, you know, I'm black, which, which, you know, Andrea, but I think even in the, in the black community, I think there's been a, a lot of things that, um, have, um, affected fatherhood. Uh, even as I think back to, you know, like slavery and, and I think of, of men who were, um, you know, that, who would have sex with many women and who would be forced to have sex with many women in order to produce, uh, a labor force, um, for, for, for the slave master. And so families were torn apart. You know, husbands and wives were torn apart. Husbands were torn apart from their kids. And so this went on for hundreds of years. And and so I think some of that, there are mindsets that have happened. And I think some of that are are things that are hard to break. And I think the only one who can who can change that, who can restore that is God, is is us as a nation turning away from God. And yet, you know, as a nation, we seem to be falling further and further away. And I think it just accentuates things that have been 
cycles, sin cycles, generational cycles that continue just to reverberate and continue to have just a huge impact in our culture and in our society. Yes. Now, just in case anybody listening says, who is this David Williams that he should tell us what we should think or do? And let's get into your story, because not only do you have a principled approach to what you're talking about, and we've heard that, starting with the scripture and what does God say, but you have experiences, as I have mentioned, on all sides of this fatherhood issue, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you want to put it that way. So share with my listeners your story. Yeah. So, you know, if I I go back to my own childhood, you know, I had a dad who was in the home for my first 11 years, but the picture I I got from my dad was one that um, probably caused me to look at marriage and sex and family very differently than what I've talked about in the first part of our conversation. My dad had been married once, uh, had six kids and was divorced and married my mom. And And I grew up watching my dad um, curse my mom out to the point of tears many days. Uh, I never saw my dad hug my mom, kiss my mom, never heard my dad tell my mom he loved her. Uh, my dad was um, verbally abusive to my brother and I, at times physically abusive to us. Uh, I saw my dad as a little boy out at bars you know, flirting with other women. I see my dad leave these bars and go to a friend friend's house and and uh, go into rooms and have sex with these women. Uh, my dad would allow my brother and I, while he was doing that, to look at pornographic magazines. And uh, when my dad would leave from these places and we'd be driving home to go to my mom and they were still married at the time, he'd say stuff like this to my brother and I. Never let let your wife know everything you have. Never let her know everything you do. Always keep a spare woman on the side and always keep spare money on the side. So I had a very, very distorted view of, of, of fatherhood and marriage and sex. And uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was uh, 11. And um, actually, I thought it was the best of times and the worst of times. Best of times because I didn't have to worry about my dad treating my mom the way he did or my brother and I. But the worst of times because I, I really did love my dad. Man, there's candy and food that I ate today because my dad ate it. TV shows, I, I'll stop as I'm turning through the TV because my dad watched them. Like I had a great affinity for my dad's love. And and my dad, after that, um, wasn't around a, a whole lot. I'd see him maybe once a month. But it wasn't really about my brother and I when we were together. He was hanging out with his friends and doing his thing. So I always felt like, you know, even when I was with my dad, I wasn't, I was probably more of a burden or a hindrance than him just wanting to be around me. And then, you know, once my mom and dad divorced, uh, my mom got in a relationship with a with a guy and this guy happened to be married and uh, had five kids. And he was in a sexual relationship with my mom and and uh, he was the minister of music at a church. And so uh, this caused my view of even God to be distorted and and marriage and sex and family. And so that was kind of what I grew up grew up watching. And some of the things you mentioned, like TV, movies, magazines. My friends, that became what I what I would think about sex um, was what I learned from them. And, uh, me, you know, I was watching stuff where, you know, sex was common in movies and TV shows and my friends were having sex. And so that was like what was kind of expected or I thought was expected of me uh, as a man. And so I ended up, uh, you know, growing up, never having sex with a young lady until I went off to college. But even though that wasn't the case. 
man, the way that I thought of women, the way that I thought of sex, the way that I thought of marriage, you know, I actually thought sex was better for a man to have with a woman who he wasn't married with um, because of things I saw with my dad or things I saw with this man with my mom or things my friends told me that was kind of the, the image I had of sex and that a man was, uh, my dad would always say things like this, even though he wasn't there. He was like, well, I give you guys money. You got a roof over your head. So I thought at best a man was just to give, give money, you know, provide for his kid, make sure they have what they need. He didn't need to be around. So that was kind of my picture. Went off to college and, uh, and I had gone to church for years, but didn't see God as being relevant. And, uh, I thought that my college education would, you know, um, be what led me, propelled me to success in my future. And so I had two goals. I was going to get a college degree. And the other goal was I was going to have fun along the way. And uh, part of having fun, sadly, was I was going to have sex with a young lady. And that happened my second year of college, sophomore in college, uh, get in a relationship with a young lady and think that I love her and she loves me. And and then she comes back to me with words that she's pregnant. And I wasn't ready to hear that. And uh, from growing up, I didn't feel like I knew what it meant to be a dad, knew what it meant to be a husband. Uh, I wanted to get my college degree and and I saw her pregnancy as an impediment to that. And so with those things in my mind, I, I um, went to her and said the best thing for us to do would be to have an abortion. She seemed to agree, but she asked me a question every day for weeks. David, you think this is the right thing to do? And uh, I would c- come back and say yes. And the day she was going to have the abortion, I wasn't even with her. We were in different cities. Her mom takes her to have the abortion. And uh, she asked me the same question that day. And very hesitantly, I said yes, and um, she had an abortion, and it was traumatic for her. Um, talked to her later that evening. She was absolutely traumatized by what had happened to her, um, but I thought in a short time she'd get over it. I'd get over it. You know, we'd move ahead, but there was a lot of lot of guilt and a lot of shame that that came upon me. Uh, one, I didn't. Um, a woman that I that I said that I loved, I didn't protect her from this pain and trauma that she went through Two, I knew that it wasn't just a blob of tissue, even though I wasn't a Christian and I wasn't following God. I knew that I had kind of made the decision for my own life and dreams and plans uh, above the life of, uh, of a child. So there was great guilt and pain that, that came upon me. And, and yet I never thought about turning back to the God I heard about as a kid. And some of that was because I saw people that claimed to know him and loved him. And their life didn't look much different than mine. So I didn't think he could make a difference or his forgiveness would do anything or he would be able to change my life. So I just continued to live the way that I live. I medicated my pain by sleeping with more women, drinking alcohol to the point of, uh, you know, wanting to not think about some of the things that I had done. I became very angry, um, very depressed. I had a unhealthy drive to finish my college education, I think because of the fact of the decision that I made and, and not providing for, for, for the child that I should have, or even honoring my girlfriend in a way that I should have. And, um, these things just continued for a long time. And, and, uh, it was a number of years that kind of walked through that, ended up going through another unplanned pregnancy. And this time didn't want to, you know, experience some of the things I did in the past and decided to marry this young lady. And it wasn't because I loved her or, or, you know, I was now pro-life. It was in some regards, I was going to make up for what I had done wrong before. And uh, I put a ring on her finger, but it didn't change anything about me. 
the things that I saw that my dad did to my mom or the very things that I was doing to my wife. I was very angry um, going back to school to get another degree because my first degree didn't fix my life. I thought another degree would. Um, my son was born. I couldn't bond with him and uh, ended up going through a divorce. And uh, it just happened that over a course of time through some men and people got put in my life, the Lord opened my eyes to the reality of his love and and his forgiveness and his healing. And he began to transform me. But you're looking or you're listening to a man who, uh, yeah, who who didn't understand God's plan for for sex, for for marriage, for family, who trifled these things, which has led to the to the death of my own child. And I was involved in a wicked, heinous, evil act. And the only way that I can say that is because I know that the forgiveness of God is even greater than the than the wrong that I've done. But God began to transform me. And so, you know, those out there who saying, you know, how can this guy say to me these things? Like, I'm guilty of all the things that I talked about before. I know the forgiveness of God. I know a life that's been transformed by his grace. He's changed me from a perspective and a way that I live that that led to death in so many areas. And he's brought me to know him, the source of life. And now I realize that his commandments and his word is the way to life. And it's brought great blessing to my life. I, I remarried. Uh, I've been married for 21 years. God has blessed my wife and I with six kids. And so a man who didn't even provide or protect for his first child, God has given me the awesome privilege to be able to raise up my six kids in my home and the fearing and the admonition of the Lord. My older son, who is 28, we have a pretty decent relationship and I've been able to speak into his life and 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 watch, you know, and, and we have a, a relationship where where we um yeah are, are pretty close and and he is actually living a life in spite of his dad even not being there, which is pretty honoring to God. And so what I've learned through my falters, through my faltering, through my failures, through my sin, is that that way brought a lot of pain, a lot of destruction, a lot of hurt to my life. And what I found in God is uh, a restoration, a healing, a forgiveness, and uh, a way where he has brought peace and joy to my life in spite of some of those things that that I've gone through. And so a lot of my heart, Andrea, is that I, especially for a young generation, I don't want them to be decimated by the things that the world says is this is the way you're supposed to live and the way that you're supposed to go. And their lives are being utterly decimated because they're going in a way contrary to God that leads to death. That my heart, as God has restored my life, is to be a part of speaking into this generation and calling them into something that is far greater, far better, and the only way to life. And that's through God's son, Jesus Christ. Amen to that. And the second portion of the second commandment is and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And your testimony, David, is one of God's mercy. And as you gave your story that night, I listened to it and your wife was sitting in the audience. I, I was in a position to watch her face, right? <laughs> I, I was listening to you, but I was watching her. Yeah. And you were honest about the fact that all the bad things that you considered were part of a personality that led to things didn't immediately go away when yeah. you were converted, yeah. but that 
what sustained both of you through that period was marriage. It wasn't magic. It was marriage. Yeah. And so um, I find your testimony not only credible, but I can see that uh, there are a lot of people who no doubt have secrets, whether it's past secrets of maybe they fathered a child, maybe they didn't, or maybe there were a woman who had an abortion but never told anybody that your message is clearly one of redemption and restoration and reconciliation with God and that your motives are not anything other than using your life as a way to help others. Much the same way Paul the Apostle had to admit and readily admitted he was busy killing Christians, imprisoning Christians. And so that made him all the more dangerous to the enemies of God because he could speak the language of those who decided they didn't care. And I think you can speak that language. Yeah, I think you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, there are so many people, regardless of the things that they face in their story or the things that are similar to what I went through. I, I think all of us recognize that there are, you know, things that have hurt us deeply, things that we regret, things that we carry around with guilt and with shame. And I think that what the Lord has shown me that as he has brought, you know, a measure of redemption and every day that gets greater and healing and, and forgiveness, I experience it more. But people, people need to, to, to realize that, that God is one who can do that. And I think sometimes we're, you know, it's almost like we want people to walk away more impressed with us than with God. Mm-hmm. And so God is the one who saved me. God is the one who's transformed me. God is the one who has healed me and brought restoration to my life. And people need to see him. And sometimes the only way that they can get a glimpse of just how great and gracious he is, is by us being willing to share, here's a hard area of brokenness in my past. Here's a hard area where I failed and I sinned greatly. But I also want you to see at the same time that God's grace is so much greater than our sin. And I think it, it, it causes people to, you know, um, people that may be even hostile to the gospel. Like I've, I've heard, I've had people, Andrea, who I'll go and I'll speak to a college group and, and I, and usually I do retreats and the first night of the retreat, I open up with my testimony. So I'll share with them my story. Mm-hmm. I've had young men come up to me who said, David, now that you have opened up your life to us and you have shared with us what you were like, and what God has done for you. I don't know what you're going to say for the rest of this weekend, but my ears are open to hear what you have to say. Wow. And you know what that allows me to do? That that allows me to be able to speak some hard truths from God's word, the hard truths in the midst of our culture, because people see that I'm not one who's out with a motive to rain down condemnation. I'm one who has condemned myself because of my sin who has been saved greatly by Jesus and and my heart in sharing with you the truth about what God's word says about these things is so that you too can come out of condemnation, that you too can come into freedom, that you too can experience God's love and God's forgiveness. And so, yeah, you know, um, that has really afforded us a lot. You know, you mentioned our marriage, but I think even, even more greatly for my wife and I, it's been, um, God given us a a heart for him that we want to, you know, walk intimately with him and that intimacy that we have with him, it overflows into our marriage 
And it allows us to be able to forgive each other, even as Jesus has forgiven us, you know, for hard things that we have done. Indeed. If, if you want practice in forgiving and being forgiven, marriage is the great place to do it <laughs> because, you know, those forgiveness are trespasses. Well, count on the fact that if you spend 24 seven with someone, there will be some trespasses inevitably. Yep. And that's the grace of God that we get to show to each other. Amen. All right. Amen. So. There are going to be people saying, how do I find out more about this guy? Where does he speak? Or how can I get him to be a speaker to our group? So share with my listeners, how do they get in touch with you? How do they find you? How do they look at some of the stuff you've already produced? Yeah, you can go to, I have a website, which is davidwilliamsspeaks.com. I also have a number of videos on YouTube. And I think it's uh, David Williams Speaks 1 is the channel. Um, so those are the two primary ways. There's some other ways, but you can get those other ways off of the website. Very good. Well, I thank you for your time. We, um, had planned this, uh, a couple of months ago, I think, but through other circumstances, today was the day that God chose that we get a chance to talk. And I'm grateful for your work and your testimony. And I know, not only do I hope, but I know that this will be a blessing to others. Uh, Thank you, Andrea, so much. Thank you for what you're doing and the opportunity to be able to share today. And listeners, as always, if you want to comment on this or other podcasts or some suggestions for future guests, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.